We've been going through a series looking at the parables of Jesus. These were stories that Jesus told to illustrate, to help us understand deep and biblical truths, truths about life, truths about life after death, truths about God that uh, up until that time there was some confusion about. And so he would tell these parables as a way to be able to relate truth to somebody in such a way that it might remove uh, the bias we might have. And so the parables would be a way that you could sort of be thinking about, okay, uh, what would I do if I were that father? What would that be like to be that son? And then at the end of it, you can kind of come back around and, and kind of understand how that relationship looks. And then you realize, oh, that's how God loves me. Because sometimes the truth that's being communicated, if we were just to come out and say the truth, you might be resistant to it. And that's why he would say this statement over and over again, he who has ears, let them hear. <clears throat> well, a lot of stuff he would say, people didn't want to hear. And so that's why the parables would both reveal and conceal truth. There were some people who would show up, and they really didn't care what he had to say. They were just looking for a soundbite with which they could use to accuse him. But as we've been saying, it was kind of hard to prosecute him in a court of law, even back in that day, when your only evidentiary proof that you can bring is, well, he was talking about mustard trees and farmers and a bunch of uh, kids who weren't doing what their dad told them to do. You can't bring somebody up on charges on that, not now and not back then. And so he would say, he who has ears, let him hear. And the idea was, if you really want to know what this means... You'll spend some time thinking about it, taking it in, contemplating, realizing what I'm saying to you truly is true. Now, for them, what they didn't want to hear, they didn't want to hear that the kingdom of God was a spiritual kingdom that God was going to plant inside the hearts of people in a relationship with him that would be fully realized in the life to come. They didn't want to hear that. What they wanted to hear was that Jesus was going to be a military leader to overthrow the government that was had invaded their land and holding them captive and forcing them into labor and servitude. They wanted to hear that, that God was finally going to come back and reestablish the Davidic kingdom, the Israelite kingdom, to be the most powerful in the face of the earth. That's what they wanted. And they didn't want to hear about what Jesus would say the kingdom of God is like. And, but over and over and over again, he would say, he was ears, let him hear. Now, I know if you're like me, you have these moments where you sort of look down with disdain on the people who are listening to Jesus, and you're like, oh, tsk, tsk. Those Hebrew morons of the first century, they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying or what he meant to do, and they were looking for an earthly kingdom, and of course it was a spiritual one, and we all know that. I just can't believe they were ever so dumb as to miss it. Yes, he who has ears, Jesus, let them hear. Apparently they didn't, and I do. However, this morning, I'm just going to say on the front end, we don't have ears to hear what it is Jesus talks about in this parable. As a matter of fact, it's actually how he ended the last parable, but I just kind of skipped over it. Why? Because I didn't have enough time to get into it, and I knew you didn't want to hear it anyway. However, because we're doing a study through the parables, we have to go back to it. Anybody know what I'm talking about yet? Well, let's go back and look at last week's parable. We'll just pick up at the very end of it and move from there to see if you have ears to hear what it is Jesus is talking about. He ends the last parable. I'm going to read the, the account from Matthew 13. It's the same parable you find over in Mark 4 and Luke 8. So Matthew 13, verse 36. After he leaves the crowd and he goes into the house, the disciples ask him, hey, Explain that parable about the weeds in the field. Last week we looked at the parable about how there was weeds in the field, and when they were first coming up, you couldn't tell them apart. But however, eventually you can begin to see that one of them fruits, one of them doesn't, and somebody had planted weeds in their garden, kind of like somebody done in Jack Nicholas's backyard. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to last week. So, 
He answered, he says, all right, well, the one who sowed the good seed, that's the son of man. The field, that's the world. The good seed, well, that stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds, well, they're the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows, it, sows uh, in them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. So that's who all the players are. So as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. What's he talking about there at the end? Anybody? Nobody wants to even say it. We, not only do we not have ears to hear, we all don't have mouths to speak. He's talking about hell. Yeah, he's talking about hell. Let me just say it a little louder. All right. He's talking about hell. And you might pause for a moment and go, I don't want to talk about hell. Nobody wants to listen to me talk about hell, and I don't want to hear about hell. I guarantee you, if any of y'all left here, and one of your friends said, oh, that church you've been talking about, what, what was the sermon on this morning? Hell. <laughs> right? None of them are going to be like, oh, oh, what time's the services next week? I want to go. Tell me more about hell. Furthermore, I'm going to guess that none of you even want to tell your friends that this morning's message was on hell. What was it about? Oh, we were doing a thing on parables. You should come next week. Don't listen to last week. Listen to the week before. It was funny. It was about weeds and Jack Nicholas and stuff. The reality is we do not have ears to hear about hell because we have this understanding or idea where we look at God and we go, God, how could a loving God even create a place like hell? How could hell even be true if everything we know about God is, is true? I mean, God is far too loving to have a place as awful and as bad as hell is, seems to be described. Well, with that thought in mind, let's pause for a minute, and who's telling this parable? Jesus. Now, was there ever a more loving, accepting person ever to exist than Jesus? Now, if you think I'm sort of blowing him up a little bit just for the sake of the fact that we're in church, think for a moment if you know of anybody who was like this, okay? There was nobody that he didn't accept, and there was nobody who didn't feel accepted by him. Uh, he would bring in anybody and everybody. The outcasts of society in that day were the blind and the lame, the crippled, the lepers, people who nobody would touch. Uh, they were the, the COVID patients of our day or the AIDS patients of the 80s. They were his friends. He would hang out with them. He would invite them in. He would touch them. He would hug them. He would love on them. Uh, the, the, the shady members of society back in his day were prostitutes, the corrupt politicians. Uh, some of that's probably still the same today. Those were his friends. Those were people he would hang out with. Those were people he would go to parties with. Uh, the people who were caught in the very act of sinning felt comfortable around him. And the people who were living out the consequences of their sin, he'd meet them there in the midst of that consequence and he would show them love and accept them. And they would come back and go, here's a guy who told me everything I ever did. And somehow they felt loved by him in the midst of it. It wasn't like he loved me, but he doesn't know my real story. No, he says he loves me and he knows everything. I he knows my whole background, but he loves me anyway. He loved people from both sides of political parties. Uh, back in that day, there was the pro-Roman party and there was the anti-Roman party. He had both were part of his disciples. Matthew was a part of the pro-Roman party, and then he had Simon who was a zealot, who was a, a terrorist trying to destroy the Roman government. He had both right there within his 12 disciples and, and his followers. Uh, he loved the people who were crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he even loved the ones who were being crucified alongside him. One cries out and says, will you forgive me? Of course I will. You'll be with me today, this day, in paradise. Is there ever been anybody 
in existence who's had that kind of an impact because of the kind of love that he's shown to anybody and everybody around him. Fair? And yet, let me tell you something else. He's also the one in the Bible who talks more about hell than anybody else. We're doing a series called Parables. I can't possibly avoid the subject because about half of his parables deal with, uh, with punishment, judgment, or hell. I mean, you can't avoid it. Uh, money's the other one you can't avoid either. He talks about money and hell all the time. It's funny. The two things we don't want to talk about in church, money and hell. What is Jesus always talking about? Money and hell. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. So we have to address it. We have to look into it a little bit further. So at the very least, let's look into it a little bit further. But what I want to do is I want to go over to another parable he tells because he tells a lot of parables about this subject. He actually tells one parable where the entire context, like, like in the wheat and the weeds, I could sort of get around talking about hell because there was enough other stuff in that parable I could talk about where I could just sort of gloss over it and be like, yeah, yeah, let's talk more about how we shouldn't be judging other people and about how, you know, we can't really tell where somebody's heart's really at. We don't know who a wheat and a weed is. Our responsibility really is to share with everybody that this life's about nothing more than a loving relationship that lasts for all eternity. I love that message. The hell stuff, let's just skip over that. I don't have the ears to hear that. Well, I'm sorry. If you continue to read through the parables, eventually you're going to have to hear it. And what I would say this morning is this. For the next 20 minutes or so, can you just hear him out on this? I know you don't want to hear about hell. I know you don't want me to talk about hell, but can you at least have the ears to hear him out for the next 20 minutes to hear what Jesus might say about this topic of hell? The most loving man who ever lived talks about this thing that we don't really think is compatible with a loving God. So what does he have to say about it? Well, let's go over to Luke chapter 16. Uh, Starting in verse 19, he tells a parable focused in on what hell is like, how somebody's there, and what it's like in hell. Uh, So Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was a beggar, a man named Lazarus. He was covered in sores, and he was longing to eat the food which fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs came over and licked up Lazarus' sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him up to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and he was in Hades, where he was in torment. And from there he looked up and he saw Abraham far, far away, and Lazarus was there by Abraham's side. And so he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send that Lazarus down here to to dip his finger in some water and to cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all of this, between you and me is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross from where you are over to us. And then he said, okay, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family then, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come out of this place of torment. And Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham. If someone were to come from the dead, then they would repent. And he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not even be convinced, even if somebody were to rise from the dead. Hmm, interesting. Almost pithy, if you will, the way to end that off for more than one reason. A couple things about the parable. As I've been saying in this series, I, I want to kind of give you some breakdown to how to understand Scripture as well as teaching you what the Scripture is. And so, in the broad sense, there's something that happens at the very beginning of this parable I've got to point out. This is the only parable where Jesus gives a character in the story a name. Everywhere else, it's always, there was this farmer, there was this woman looking for a coin, there was this dad who had two sons, uh, there were two brothers. 
Uh, and even here, it starts off in the same way. There was a certain rich man, but then all of a sudden he names somebody. Uh, he gives him a name. Now, that's what, I, what we call a pattern disrupt. And we always notice when there's a pattern disrupt. We, we, we kind of take, you know, we usually ask questions about whenever there's a pattern. Like, if you know somebody who's always eating salads, I mean, it's just carrots and greens, and a, I don't know what else you guys eat because I don't eat any of that stuff. But <laughs> if you were to see somebody who always ate that stuff walk in with a box of jelly donuts, would you not kind of head swivel that and go, would you not have to ask the question, Platus? Hmm. Interesting breakfast choice today. What gives, right? You would ask a question about the thing that stands out. So in this parable, when Jesus is telling this fictitious story about a certain man and this beggar, he gives the guy a name, which, makes you, which should make you pause and go, what's in a name? Why, why did he give him a name? What, what's the background of this name? Well, if you break down the name Lazarus, uh, it means the Lord is my help, or the Lord is my helper, the Lord is my help. And as with a lot of Jesus' parables, he will contrast two different types of people. And so, like you have in the prodigal son, you've got the prodigal son, and then you've got the hardworking son. So you see a lot of contrast. So here, of course, you have a rich man and you have a beggar. So that's the contrast. Now, is the reason why the beggar is in heaven and the rich man's in hell, is it because rich people go to hell? No. Thank God, otherwise all America would be there. Maybe we are. Who knows? Because um, America is the richest nation on the face of the earth. Um, hey, we're talking about hell. I got to liven it up somehow. So it's not because he's wealthy, because there's a lot of wealthy people. I mean, Abraham was very wealthy in the Old Testament, and yet he's up there in heaven. So it wasn't the wealth that separated them. There's something there with this. And what you see is Lazarus is, is somebody who looked to the Lord for his help. The rich man looked to his wealth for his help. Money may be able to buy a lot of things, I don't know if it can, people say it can't buy happiness, but some of them people don't look all too sad to me. But I can tell you something it can't buy. It can't buy your eternity. One of the quotes I always go back to, and I remember when I saw it, I knew I'd quote him for the rest of my life. Uh, Warren Buffett was getting together a group of wealthy billionaires, Bill Gates and several others, and he was trying to encourage them to give away most of their wealth before they die. And so uh, Warren Buffett pledged to give billions of dollars away before he died. And in there, he said, made this quote. He said, certainly there's many ways to get to heaven, but this is sure a good one. You might want to check with Jesus on that one, actually, because there was a certain rich man. And there was another guy, Lazarus, who trusted in the Lord for his help, not his money for his help. And so what you see in here is the reason why one is in heaven and the other is not is because one looked to God as his help and the other was looking to their money as their help. They looked at money to be their sense of worth and meaning and happiness and purpose. A couple years back ago, we did, we did a series on this very idea. It was called, When Life Sucks Everything Out of You. And, and the gist was simply this. It was this quote by an atheist who looks at it and says, you know, as I look through life, I've learned one thing. Although I don't believe in God, if you make anything else in your life the center of your life other than God, it will suck the life out of you. Whether it be money or fame or possessions, whatever it might be, it's going to suck the life out of you. And what does this guy find? It sucked the life out of him for all eternity. And so the very first thing we point out is, is the reason why Lazarus is in heaven is because the Lord was his help. The reason why the rich man is in hell is because he was looking to money to be his help for his savior, for his salvation, for his meaning, purpose, significance, and happiness. And you're gonna see the way some of this plays out. A couple of things we see in here about what, G what Jesus has to say about hell is some people think, well, hell should only be for a short time. And there's even books been written about this, that hell is not a permanent place destination. It's just sort of a, a temporary period. If you notice here, very clearly he says, 
there is a chasm that is between us, and it is fixed so that you can't come here and we can't come there. It is a permanent separation. Now, the thing with us you need to understand is we have this idea that somebody would go to hell and instantly realize the error of their ways and they would change. What do you notice about this guy? He's in hell, but has he really changed? Let's look at it. Uh, He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send that Lazarus down here to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony of this fire. Now, on earth, the rich man was the kind of guy who bossed his servants around, right? And here we are on the other side. And what's he still thinking? Why would I ask Lazarus to come help me? I don't talk to people like Lazarus. I'll talk to his master. His master is Abraham. Abraham, send that do-boy Lazarus, you know, that good-for-nothing who always hung out outside, never did nothing. You know, that peon, that guy who's not on par with me, who's not equal with me, never has been, and certainly isn't now. Send that servant of yours to come down here and do my bidding. Do you notice his mindset hasn't changed? He doesn't have this moment where he goes, oh my gosh, instead of using my wealth to only serve my own ends, I, I should have used my wealth in such a way that you know, as, as, as a reflection of God's love for me, I should have had that same love for others. In other words, his, help, his lack of help of Lazarus is not the reason he's in hell, but it's evidence that points to the reason why he's in hell. Because when you have a loving relationship with God, you'll love others like God loves. And the fruit of that in your life will be that you would help someone who's in need in the same way that Jesus would help someone in need, the same way that Jesus helped you when you're in need. Does he have any sense of that at all? No. Lazarus is still a servant. He's still a peon. Nothing has changed at all in his mindset. Um, next of all is, do you see him at this point going, oh God, I really want a relationship with you. I'm so sorry. I missed the idea. I'm so sorry that I, that I lived my whole life all for me and for all for my own ends and all for my own pleasure and all for my own comfort. I really wish I had spent my life having a relationship with you. Is that what he says? No, he says, have pity on me. Help me deal with the consequences of my actions. And this, there's, a, there's a thing here I don't want you to miss. We often think people are crying out for God when all they're crying out for is a relief from the consequence of their actions. A lot of times there's a lot of people who pray to God in foxholes, so to speak, but they don't really want a relationship with God. They just want the relief from the consequence of their actions. Our whole world is centered around, I don't want to change who I am or the decisions I'm making or who my allegiance is to or who I look to for my sense of meaning, purpose, and happiness. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do and have God take away all the consequences. Is that not pretty much how we operate in our life? Have pity on me and take away this agony, this pain. Come down here and give me some water to drink. Take away my consequence, not, oh, I desperately want a relationship with you. Nothing has changed. Which is why I want to come back to inventing Anna, the Anna Delvey story. It's, a, it's based on a true story of an actual person named Anna Delvey or Anna Sikorsky, depending on which you know, her true name is. Uh, she was a con woman who was an immigrant, came here as a young girl. And this is the true part. True part. She was able to convince the elites of New York that she was an heiress just awaiting on daddy to send her her trust fund. And so because of that, she got the most posh, expensive hotels in Manhattan to put her up in the nicest of rooms and penthouses with unlimited room service for weeks, if not months on end, simply on the idea or belief that she was somebody that she wasn't. She got the social elite to take her out, to buy her, to go on vacations with her and travel all over the world. And then all of a sudden, bit by bit, it began to unravel and eventually she gets arrested on a conspiracy of fraud. And she finds herself in jail. And of course, as you saw there, she instantly regretted the 
ways that she had lived and was ready to be repentant and, and move to a different direction in life. Right? No. You saw what a brat she was in jail. You would think that that would have humbled her. And there were people in her life said, oh my gosh, certainly she's humbled herself right now. She's going to come clean and just confess that this was all a lie, that she wasn't who she said she was. But in her mind, she still was who she always was, even though she never was. And the rich man still thinks he's somebody, even though he's not, and never really was somebody any different than anybody else. And nothing in his life has changed, has it? See, we have this mindset that certainly they would change, certainly they would do something different, and so I think it's very unjust for God to make hell a permanent sort of thing because people change. And this is where I just want to pause for a minute, and it's as if God's up in heaven saying, oh, oh, okay, you're right. Maybe I don't understand justice very well. I'm sure you all could do a better job. How about this? How about this? I will give you all the opportunity to dole out justice amongst yourselves. I want to see how you do. Go ahead. I'll wait. And do we not explore all of our theories within all of our political systems? For some, they would say the reason why people are doing bad things is because we're so harsh with the way we treat people who do bad things. So what we need to do is we need to not be so harsh with the way we treat them, and, 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 and then they'll, they'll realize that this isn't the right way to do it, and they'll change. We need to be very gracious and very kind because punishment is very mean and very cruel. So we as a loving society, just like God is a loving God, shouldn't punish anybody. And so that's where you get these dumb ideas like they've done out in California where you can steal up to 900 and some odd dollars and the police aren't going to arrest you for it. That's the end result. Do you know actually what's happened? You've probably seen the videos, right? People walk into Walgreens, load up a bag with $900 worth of stuff, just shy of the $950 limit, and walk right out the front door. And there's nothing you can do about it. Hey, hey, police officer, police officer, he just stole a, a, a new, new game system. Was it over a thousand bucks? Nope. It happens. In New York, they've got a no bail law right now. The result of that was there was a guy who robbed a bank on Tuesday, was arrested, was released on no bail. Do you know what he decided to do on Wednesday? No, he didn't go rob a bank. He robbed two banks on Wednesday. But we have in our mindset that this will work. That's where we get these crazy, oh, how about this one? We all went through this experiment. We sh police are bad. Policing tactics are bad. Uh, the guns that they carry is bad. We need to be able to police ourselves as a community. They tried that in downtown Seattle for a little while, didn't they? You know what was really crazy about what they did? They decided they needed to carry guns and do harsh police tactics like stop and frisk anybody who came into the autonomous zone. And in the one month that they tried this experiment, uh, there was stories of rape and killings going on inside this wonderful new utopia that was started. Hmm. And I just picture God going, I'll wait. I'll wait. You don't like, I know, I know, I'm harsh, I'm mean. You don't like my system. I'll wait. Here's another question. Is it a correctional facility or a penitentiary? We use the words interchangeable, but they really are saying two different things, aren't they? Like one is the mindset that, well, they'll go here for a short while in this, you know, rehabilitation center for the criminal acts that they've committed, and they'll come out with a changed life and be a better, you know, part of society, right? Others would go, no, it's a penitentiary. Lock them up for what they've done. Throw away the key. It's really interesting. We get on God for hell being for all eternity, and yet we'll pass a life sentence on someone? Huh, that almost seems like as if we're saying, for the rest of our existence, we think they should be locked up. Hmm, that sounds very similar to what I've been talking about in the scriptures. 
Now, I know some of you are going, you know, but there are stories, and I know some people who got locked up and they changed their ways, and they shouldn't have been locked up forever. They should have been released, and I would agree with that. In the same way that the first time you commit a sin, as we looked at last week in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, does God pluck you up out of this earth and throw you away instantly? No. How many times does he allow you to sin and mess up and sin and mess up and consequence and consequence and consequence and consequence? For sometimes, the consequence is actual jail. For sometimes, the consequence is a ruined life, a, a lost finances, a mo- ruined relationships. And one of two things happens. Just like a hardened criminal, oftentimes people who get thrown in jail just become a worse criminal, right? Oftentimes, people who go through those hardships, after what God allowed to happen in me, I will never, ever, ever go to church again. What is that? Is that not the same thing? Somebody who's just hardening their heart and their position towards God because the adversity has come in their life? And we have this idea that at some point they're going to change? God's given ample opportunity. There's others, though, that yes, they go through those same circumstances, exact same circumstances, sometimes even worse, and they come out of it and go, you know, I'm looking forward to a better home and a better place where there's no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, and no more evil ever anymore where God will take all the evil in this world and he will lock it up for good and he will allow us to have a loving relationship with him for all those who, have, who received his grace and have been forgiven. And so God's looking out at us and saying, okay, you think you could do a better job? You think you're more loving? How's it working out for you? Have we solved this? Is there any, is there any country, any society where we look to and say, God, I wish you were more like... And yet, we'll look at God with what he has done and feel like as if we have some right, some ability, some wisdom to judge and say, there's no way a loving God could create a hell. Really? What's the alternative? Well, let's read a little bit further about the story. One of the chief problems with the guy who's in hell is he won't take responsibility for his actions. And that's one of the issues. Just like the Anna chick, she, she won't take responsibility for any of her actions. She won't fess up and finally admit, here's what I did, I conned everybody. She, she never, at the end, says, yep, I did it, I conned y'all. No, she never takes responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. You know anybody like that? Well, let's read about a guy like that. Well, I beg you, Father, here it is, send Lazarus. He hadn't changed his mindset yet. Lazarus is still a do-boy. Go send him to your own bidding. Send Lazarus to my family, for I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they won't all, not also come to this place of torment. What is the underlying accusation there? Why am I here? I'm here because I wasn't fairly warned. You know, and if I was fairly warned, I wouldn't be here. If I had known this is where this was going to end, I would have made a different choice. But the reason why I'm here is not because of anything I've done, God. It's because you haven't done your job. So let me tell you how you need to do your job to tell me what I ought to be doing so I don't end up in a place like this. And he says, come on, they've got Moses and the prophets. You know, they've got a long history of God acting in humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve and all the way through. What more do you want? No, 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 no. He says, if somebody were to come back from the dead, then they would repent. And he says, listen, if they're not going to believe what I've already done, if they're not going to believe creation and Adam and Eve and all of the stories you have throughout the period of the judges and all of the stories we have um, through David and all the prophets that come after, if they're not going to respond to thousands of years of my interactions, relationship with them, they're not going to believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. They're not. Bertrand Russell, who was a uh, philosopher from the last century uh, and one of the well-known atheists of the last century and authors, uh, was asked a question in one of the debates. What will you say if after you die, it turns out there is a God and you meet him face to face? What would you say? This is Bertrand Russell. Here's, Here's the funny thing. Listen to how he's almost quoting exactly what the rich guy in this parable is stating. 
Now here's a guy who doesn't believe in the Bible, does not agree with the Bible, but ends up quoting exactly from Scripture the same sentiment. Here's what Bertrand Russell, well-known atheist, author of the last century, says, I should say to God, why did you make the evidence for your existence so insufficient? In other words, whose fault is it that I didn't believe? Certainly not mine. It's God's, right? Now, I said there was kind of two pithy things that Jesus does here when he says, you know, if they don't believe the Old Testament, they wouldn't believe if somebody came back from the dead. Now, of course, we know that Jesus ultimately comes back from the dead, and anybody in our day and time right now who does not believe in life after death or believes it, you know, doesn't know what happens after we die, it's because they don't believe Jesus coming back from the dead. The second reason I think Jesus names this guy Lazarus, if you know your scriptures, over in John chapter 11, there's another guy, not this guy, another guy who was a friend of Jesus. guy's name was Lazarus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he dies. Lazarus dies, and Jesus shows up four days later. Martha comes out, why weren't you here? You, know, you could have done something. He's like, hey, yeah, I'll do something. Mary comes over, why weren't you here? You should have done something. And he just cries with her, and then he goes, says, Lazarus, come forth, and he pulls Lazarus out of the grave. If you read the rest of that story, a lot of us focus on the easiest memory verse in the Bible, John, you know, 1132, I think it is, Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. I got that one memorized. <laughs> but if you would read the rest of the story, what you'll see is this. The religious leaders of the day, they didn't believe in God because Jesus, rose, or Jesus raised him from the dead. Rather, they were envious of the fact that people were now claiming that he was being sent from God. They were envious of the following he was getting, and it says in John, John, John chapter 11, the end of that story ends with them having a meeting, a specially called meeting, where they plot to take Jesus' life. So here's this guy saying, God, here's what you need to do to save everybody. Here's what you should have done. And God's saying, listen, I've done enough. I've done enough. What more do you want me to do? I, I've, I've placed in the heart of every person who's ever lived, no matter what culture, no matter what custom, no matter where in the world you are, three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What happens after I die? Everybody has those three questions. And I'm the only answer to any of them. The only answer that science has found, they hit a dead end at where, where everything comes out of nothing. And that all points to, some people even call it, what do they call that? The, um, the God particle? Oh, huh, that's an odd name for that one. Meaning in life, the greatest philosophers who have ever lived, atheists included, all come to the conclusion there is no meaning in life outside of a relationship with God. Even the atheist philosophers believe this. There is no meaning in life if there is no God. What happens after I die? There's a lot of theories out there. The crazy thing is, though, everybody has this sense that there's something after we die, which is completely incompatible with the idea that we were an accidental creation from some cosmic force. If we all were here by an accident, that means death is nothing more than a group of carbon-based molecules organized in a unique way for a short period of time, and then they cease to exist. Yet something within us, God says this thing like, he said eternity in our hearts, even though we cannot fathom it. Some, why would we even ask what happens after we die? Where does that point to? Once again, it points back to God. We have within our soul a need to be unconditionally loved, yet we know we're not capable of loving somebody unconditionally. How on earth could we ever find an unconditional love that we yearn for if no human is capable of it? It can only be found in God. Let's face it. Biology is a joke. And I mean that Honestly. At what point in listening to biology or astronomy do you sit in there and listen to somebody tell you this all happened by accident and go, eh, no, no. 
No. Oh, yeah, you know, the Earth has to be on its axis. If it's not on its axis, nothing works right. Well, how did that happen? An asteroid hit it and tilted it the perfect degree. Oh, that was convenient. If we were just, <laughs> if we were just an inch closer, an inch farther away from the sun, no life would exist. How did we end up here? An asteroid, everything split apart, and we ended up right here. Oh, isn't that convenient? And you go through all of these stories about how just, what a miraculous moment. What a miraculous turn of events. At some point, you go, you know, I don't have enough faith to believe there's no God. That's why Romans, that's why Paul writes in Romans, he says, God's evidence has been known since the creation of the world. Like, you watch those, those Planet Earth videos that, that BBC put out. It's funny, if you watch them long enough, you'll hear them say things like, they, they don't want to use creation language, but you just can't resist saying, perfectly designed for. Huh, design? That's not how it happened, right? It all was by accident. There's no design. Or there was one that said, this is my favorite moment. I, I, I don't know which one it's in. I wish I could go back and find it. I think it was Sigourney Weaver's voice. It says, Earth, the lucky planet. <laughs> yeah, 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 lucky planet. When you realize the odds of just what that really, that statement means, your moment, it's that moment where you go to Dumb and Dumber, we go, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> one in 10 to the 43 billionth power? Oh, okay. Sorry, moving on, I digress. <laughs> this guy is in hell. He won't take responsibility for anything in his life. The reason why I'm here, you didn't give me enough evidence. You didn't prove yourself enough. That's why I'm here. You need to do something else more to prove it. The difference between Lazarus, God is my help, and the rich man, I'm going to do it on my own, is personal responsibility. Lazarus says, I'm guilty, I need help. The rich man, I can figure this out, you just need to give me more information. I can do this on my own. I did a series a couple years ago about personal responsibility. It, it is the dividing point in life. It's a dividing point between uh, a childhood and adulthood. Personal responsibility. Why? Because it's the dividing point between life and death, ultimately, is taking personal responsibility. All of us have sinned. All of us have done things we shouldn't have had. All of us have made mistakes. All of us, as the scriptures say, has fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ also died for all of us and gave us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. The question is, will you take responsibility for what you've done and ask forgiveness, like Lazarus does, or will you not take responsibility and continue to go on your own way? That's the difference. That's the difference between these two. Taking responsibility, not taking responsibility. Uh, think about the thief on the cross, right? There's two of them. We talked about this on Easter. One continues to mock. One says, God, deliver me from my consequences. We shouldn't be up here. Get us out of here. Uh, undo the consequences. And the other guy says this. We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. Jesus, could you just remember me? Could you remember me? Not get me out of this situation. Not come down and, and put a drop of water to, to relieve my, my suffering and my pain. No, no, no. Jesus, could you remember me? You know, I know we don't know each other that well, but could you at least, you know, kind of give me a high on the other side? Something? It's like, yeah, today you'll be with me in paradise. Last thing is, is you have to know from what Jesus talks about with hell is hell's a choice. It's your choice. It's your choice. Um, all of the choices this guy made in life led to this place. And even at this point, he still doesn't choose to have a relationship with God. He just wants the consequences taken away. So I say this almost every week. This life is about nothing more 
than choosing to have a loving relationship with him that you'll enjoy for all eternity, right? What if somebody doesn't want to choose that? What if somebody doesn't want to do that? What does God to do? Force you into a relationship? Wouldn't that be kind of creepy? I mean, if anybody else does that, that's creepy, right? Hey, you want to go out Friday night? No. Please, come on. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're wonderful. I think you're special. I really love you. I'll do anything. Really, please. No. No. I will make you come with me. Well, why can't God override all of our choices and, and just have all roads lead to heaven? That's not a choice at all then, right? I mean, that's like saying that North Korea is, is a democracy, like they claim. You can vote for whoever you want as long as it's from the Kim family. <laughs> You're free to choose. You're free to elect whoever you like. We kill you, we put you in bad place, you and your whole family. If you don't, or you vote for me. You have a choice. What choice is it if all roads lead to heaven? But I don't want a relationship with God. Too bad, you're going anyway. But I want to go to hell. Nope, sorry, too bad. Everybody goes to heaven. That's where you have to go. Do you want to spend all eternity with somebody you don't even want to be with? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Those who are in hell are in one sense successful rebels all the way to the end. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. I don't mean they don't wish to come out. For everybody wishes to be happy and avoid the consequences of their actions. But they don't have even the first hint of a love for God or self-abandonment, which alone the soul can reach any good. And their selfish, self-centered, self-righteous, self-justification. Does that not perfectly describe the guy from this parable? Selfish, self-centered, self-righteous, self-justification. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they've demanded. They are, therefore, they are therefore self-enslaved. Meanwhile, those who are in heaven are forever submitting in obedience and becoming more like him and free for all eternity. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is simply this question. What exactly are you asking God to do? To wipe out all their past sins at all costs? Give them a fresh start? Smooth out every difficulty? And offer them miraculous help? He's done that. That's what the cross was all about. He forgave them, but alas, they won't ask to be forgiven. Should God then just leave them alone? Well, sadly, I'm afraid that's exactly what he's done. In the end, there's only two people, two kinds of people, that is. Those who say to God, God, your will be done. And to those, God looks back and says, okay, fine, your will be done. I'll end off with this. Anybody ever, as a kid, want to run away from home? I mean, even if you weren't from this generation, can you at least identify with the poet that said, we're not going to take it? <laughs> oh no, we're not going to take it anymore? We've got the right to choose it. There ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. We'll fight the powers that be. Just don't pick our destiny because you don't know us. You don't belong. We're not going to take it anymore. Oh, you're so condescending with all this talk of hell. Your gale is never ending, or your gall is never ending. We don't want nothing, not a thing from you. Just picture saying this, picture not saying this to your parents, like we all did. Picture saying this to God. Your life is trite and jaded, Jesus. Boring and confiscated. If that's your best, it simply will not do. Is that not an echo of what this guy is saying in hell? 
yeah, yeah, we're not going to take it anymore. So picture saying those words to your parents. What if you actually not just like said it in your bedroom? What if you came out of your bedroom and said it to your parents? <laughs> and what if your dad looks back at you and says, all right, you don't want to take it anymore. You want to leave? Take all your stuff and go. So you're like, yeah. And you go into your room, you start packing stuff up. You come out to the front door and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, take all your stuff. I paid for all that stuff in there. That stays here. I mean, come on. All your clothes, I bought them. As a matter of fact, what you're wearing, leave it at the door. <laughs> all your toys, they stay. That flashlight stays. That pillow stays. But I bought this with my allowance. Yeah, you earned that, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trust me, whatever you earned was a gift because nobody's hiring you, not with the way you do stuff, not with how many times you forget to do things. You'd have been fired years ago, okay? $2, you earned $2. Find $2 worth of junk and you can leave with that. So you storm out buck naked in late January. Some of you are thinking, I like this idea, I'm going to use this. <laughs> How long does it take before you realize that every good thing that you experienced and had in your life was, was provided from the very one you rebelled against? That is what hell is. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Hell is a place void of God's presence and all, of the, all, the, all the good that God has given. That's what hell is. You don't go with anything. If you want to live in existence away from God, you also live in existence away from everything that God has ever done, everything God has ever provided, and that is everything you've ever enjoyed and loved. You've taken for granted the fact that God allows the sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives rain to both the good farmers and the evil farmers. You take for granted every blessing God's given you. But at the end of the day, you want to go? You don't want to take it anymore? You don't want to live under his rules? You don't want to live in a relationship with him? Eventually he says, okay. And he doesn't say it with a smile. If you read Matthew 23, Jesus is at the end. It's the last thing Jesus teaches. And these people have rejected and rejected and rejected. And in Matthew 23, he goes through what's called the seven woes. And he's like saying, this is not going to turn out like you want it to. This is going to be really bad. I don't want this to happen to you. Woe to you because of the decisions you made. And woe because of this. And woe, and he goes down all this whole list of stuff. And then it ends with this passage a lot of people are familiar with where he says, hear his heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. What does this guy say is not enough? All these prophets. Yeah, you stoned everyone that they sent to you. How I've often longed to gather your children together like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. In other words, there's a storm coming and I really want to pull you underneath my wings to protect you. But you were not willing. So look, your house is left desolate and you won't see me again. Now, is that a vindictive, vindictive malicious God who's like, oh, I can't wait to send them to hell. You cross me just one time. Or is this somebody who has done everything they possibly could to get you to change? And his heart is breaking as you say, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm done with you. And he says, you don't understand how bad this is going to be. This is going to be really, 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 really bad. Please don't do this. Oh, how I long that you would just come in and let me protect you. 
let me be your help. But this decision you've made that you've just continued to harden on is going to leave you desolate. It's going to leave you alone, buck naked in the cold, with nothing to your name for all eternity. The choice is yours. It really is. And you have the opportunity to make that choice on this side of eternity, not that. By that point, your heart will be too hard. We join us as we close our time in prayer. Father, may you give us ears to hear what you have to say about hell. This isn't a message any of us wanted to hear on this first weekend of summer, but it's your truth. And maybe we, may, we, we, may we be ones who are willing to hear you out, recognize truth when we hear it, and live accordingly. May we, may we understand your heart that you don't want anybody to perish. You don't want anybody to end up there, which is why you've done everything possible to have a loving relationship with us. Father, may you move the hearts in this room not to just want to avoid consequences, but to want to have a relationship with you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.